0: Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. Even though we've come to a chapter break, we should keep in mind that we're in this portion of the epistle to the Ephesians where the believer is being exhorted to live a life that's characterized by wise decisions by understanding what the will of the Lord is under the enabling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, that was a, a, a tongue-twister, information-packed paragraph, and it perhaps might be the most important paragraph of the night, so I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, because I could tell I lost uh, most of you. We are in this portion of the epistle. I want you to remember where we are, where the believer is being exhorted to live wisely by understanding what the will of the Lord is under, under the enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, those three things, what the, to live wisely, how do we live wisely? By understanding what the will of the Lord is. How do we understand what the will of the Lord is? By being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that. Now, wise living is not going to happen apart from the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? Wise living is not going to happen apart from the filling by means of the Holy Spirit. Among the results, now these are not the only results that are mentioned in, in chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. But among the results of the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit is mutual submission. That is, submission within the particular context that we find ourselves at any given moment. And that's key. Some people have totally misused, abused, and taught wrongly in every possible way. Verse 21 of chapter 5 be subject to one another in the fear or the respect of Christ. And they don't realize that that's not where it ends. That is explained in chapter 5, verse 22, all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. So mutual submission means that we, each of us, have situations where we are to submit in a particular context. For example, this is not one of the contexts that's mentioned in this passage, but it's a legitimate one. Right now, you are submitting to my leadership as I teach this class doesn't make me any better than you. Now, don't amen that. It doesn't make me any better than you, but it just means in this particular context, that's the the direction that that submission should go. Same way in a college classroom, same way if a police officer pulls you over to give you a ticket. In that particular context, you submit to that leadership, and it means it has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority as a person. Now, if we keep that in mind, if the culture would keep it in mind, we wouldn't have such a hard part with that which we just finished studying, submission within the marriage relationship. If we, would, if we would realize it's both husband and wife are equal before the Lord. Both have been created in God's image. It's just that one has a leadership responsibility in marriage. So Paul goes on to mention three areas of mutual submission. Three areas of submission, husband or wives to husbands, and by implication, don't miss this, by implications, husbands to the Lord. That's all over that passage. Wives to husbands, and by implications, husbands to the Lord. Tonight we study the submission of children to parents. And by implication, the submission of parents to the Lord's authority. And then next week we'll study slaves to masters, or and when we put this in its more contemporary context, employers, employees to employers, but by implication and actually by statement we'll see that the masters themselves have a responsibility before the Lord. Now, when it comes to children and the obedience to parents, this is not the only place in the scriptures that this is written. In fact, in there's a sister letter to the letter to the Ephesians. It's the letter to the church of Colossae. It's called Colossians, and in Colossians chapter 3 verses 20 through 21, Paul says this, "Children, be obedient to your parents in all things." For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Now, in the letter to the Ephesians, and I've just said that's a sister letter. by, By that, I mean that both letters were delivered at the same time by the same messenger. They cover roughly the same material, but from a different perspective. In Ephesians, Paul is speaking about unity within the body of Christ. Probably the central idea in Colossians is the preeminence of Jesus Christ, But many of the same subjects are dealt with, and this happens to be one of them. In Colossians, he only devotes two verses to it. But here in Ephesians, he's going to devote four verses to it. Let me read the four verses that Paul now devotes to it in Ephesians. This is our passage for tonight. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Then in verse 4, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The first thing that we need to settle in terms of an exegetical issue or even an expositional issue for that matter is who's being referred to here. Who are the children in this passage? Because all of us, no matter what our age is, are children of somebody. Perhaps our parents are living or not living, but we're all children. Somebody. So what about this particular word? What is the meaning in context? And this is important because the meaning in context has ramifications on the idea of obedience and the relationship of adult children perhaps to their parents. When does the command to obey stop, or does it ever? And when, if ever, does the command to honor one's parents cease, or does it ever? And are the two ideas related in any way, the command to obey and the command to respect, or is there any relationship between those two commands? Those are the questions that I hope to answer tonight in the time that we have together. The way that Paul is using the term "ta techna," tekna is the word for children in this context, this is a child that's old enough to understand the meaning of right and wrong and to understand this command to obey one's parents and the idea that this child has free will now a, a three-month old is not it's not covered under this because that three-month-old doesn't know the difference between right and wrong not just yet at least not under most uh, pedi- most pediatricians and most uh, child psychologists would not think that at that early age that's a possibility certainly has, has free will, but not free will that can be exercised within the context of right and wrong. So we, we certainly can't extend this back so far to a, a child in a, in a crib. And this is important because sometimes parents don't understand this. And they get perhaps a little too physical even with infants. Not, not perhaps. Sometimes people do get too physical even with infants. And we've had to deal with that at least in past experience here, even here. I've had to deal with that in the past. Now, how old does a person become a tekna, though? T-E-K-N-A. How how old does a person have to be? Well, a person has to be old enough to understand the difference in right and wrong at free will and exercise it and understand this command. That comes at a fairly early age. It doesn't come at three months, but it sure might come at two or three. As soon as a person can talk, then they have a vocabulary that they can also understand things. So it comes fairly early. And covers the period, and this is important, tatechna, children, it's in the plural. Tatechna includes the period all the way through where the child is dependent upon the parent. Now, watch, just like last week, we stressed that this information was given in the context of the ancient Near East. uh, And actually, I didn't mention it, but also in the the context of the Greco-Roman world. We need to understand that this information, too, is given in that context. And it was a bit different from ours. It was given in a patriarchal society where, where the Father was the law. The Father made law, the Father was law, and what the Father said was law. Now, that's slightly different than what our particular context in our culture, but we at least need to keep that in mind. I'll, I'll return to that idea in just a moment. But in keeping with the flow of Paul's argument, Children, and that is a child that's anywhere from, may I just pick an arbitrary age of two, you know, some, somewhere in that range. As soon as a person can communicate with you, they should be able to understand this, to all the way through to the period of time where, to put it in modern context, perhaps where they're still under your roof, or perhaps to when they take a bride or a husband. Certainly, now there's no question about this, certainly by the time a daughter takes a husband, she is out from underneath this particular command. And let me tell you why. This is why, by the way, this is, this is why it's so important that people understand the significance of a very important part of the marriage ceremony, which is oftentimes not stressed enough. When the father walks the bride down the aisle and stops with the husband-to-be, and for what in whatever way the pastor does it, when the pastor leans over and says, who gives this man to be married to this woman? And the father says, well, I do, or her mother and I, But however they, however they prefer to do that. And then that father takes the daughter's hand and places it into the hand of the husband. He has just turned over the well-being of that precious dear little daughter of his to that man. And that man better darn well make sure <laughs> that, he, that he fulfills his responsibility, by golly. And then you know what happens to the father. Now, in my case, I got up on the platform, but it most, what the father goes and sits down. And at that moment, that daughter is now not covered by Ephesians chapter six, verses one through four. Now she's covered by Ephesians five, twenty-two and following. Do you see what I'm saying? All joking aside, do you see what I'm saying there? And it's the same way for a son, I I believe, too, in terms of this idea of obedience to one's parents. Now, just in case I lose you, that's not going to be the way it is in just a moment when it comes to honoring one's parents. There is a difference. They are related to answer one of those questions, but there is a difference. So let's hang in there with me. But in keeping with the flow of Paul's argument about mutual submission, first wives to husbands and then husbands to the Lord, in keeping with that idea, children express their submission... By obeying their parents. Now, the word children is in the plural, but the word parents is in the plural as well. Mother and father. Father and mother. Now, father is the only one that's going to be mentioned in a moment, and I'll get back to the patriarchal idea there. But children, obey your parents in the Lord or as unto the Lord. The the word in the Lord modifies obedience, not parents here. Now, the significance of that is, Is that children are not commanded here? Would you do that? Children are not commanded to obey their parents if their parents tell them to do something that is obviously contrary to God's will. Now, if you're gonna with with that in mind, you better have the intellect to be able to discern that. But in this sick culture, like part of ours is today. When you see people on television, you read about them in the newspapers, where fathers have ordered their daughters, particularly in this situation, fathers have ordered their daughters to do the vilest things. That daughter is not covered by this passage about a child obeying their parents. When, when something is obviously, obviously evil. We said the same thing about wives and husbands, didn't we? And that's the reason we said that is because in verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not like not not as though your husband is Lord, but as unto the Lord. Same thing here. Children obey your parents in the Lord, or perhaps even as unto the Lord, for this is right. This is the thing that should be done. Now, this is good for the family relationship. It's also good for culture at large. Because who among us, who among us enjoys seeing a little child run rampant in the grocery store and sit down and throw a fit? Or at the movie theater, or at a restaurant. Nobody enjoys that. And it doesn't make for a good culture. It doesn't make for a good family unit either. And it does the child no favors to disobey their parents on a regular basis. Now, we all do it on a temporary basis. Now, then we've all done that. But this is talking about consistency. Children, obey your parents. Obedience is right in the sense that it is in harmony with God's will for children. And again, a child, just to make sure we're all on the same page, a child is someone that's old enough to know the difference in right and wrong, to understand this command and exercise free will. Whatever age that occurs in. Some children may be more precocious, well, then they have more responsibility. Again, and this is important, more so than you might think, when a child becomes an adult, he or she no longer has the responsibility to obey their parents. But the responsibility that's mentioned in the next verse, the responsibility to honor one's parents, continues. As most of you, I think, know, or at least have heard of, or will know at some time in the future, there may become there may come a time when an adult child, adult offspring, deals with a parent that is. For whatever reason, usually a, an issue of health or me- mental capacity, that is no longer able to make decisions on their own behalf that are in that person's best interest. Now, if that time comes, obviously there's a difference between obeying one's parent and honoring one's parent. That wasn't my parent, but I'll use my father's mother as an example. At the end of her life, she was overcome with dementia. I, I visited her, and again, I was a grandchild. I think this still flows from grandchildren to grandparents. I was a grandchild. I visited her, and she begged me to get her out of that medical facility that she was in. Now, She, she thought she was 21 years old again. She obviously had her mental capacity had been greatly or injured in some way by these strokes that she had had, it wasn't in her best interest for me to obey that command. In fact, to honor her, I had to disobey that command. Are you Are you following me? There may be times when that's done by an adult offspring. Uh, and and if that, by the way, if it ever comes to the point where your children sit you down and say, "Listen, Mom, Dad, you know I love you, and I can we." but I followed you home the other day and you ran three stop signs. This actually happened in our family. You know, it would be better for everybody concerned, you included, if you didn't drive anymore. I'll take you wherever you want me to take you. I'll, I'll, I'll hire a service to take you wherever you want me to take you. You see, it's not honoring your mother or father to let your mother or father run over some child. And, and we actually had that happen in our family that the neighbors called and... Uh, and just ask if there's something to be done because a member of our family almost ran over some children, not my father, but someone else. It almost ran over some, and we said, yeah, we'll do it. It was a hard It was an easy conversation to have. But because we loved this lady, we had to do that for her own good. How would she feel if she had run over a child by not looking just drop it in reverse and just run out the driveway? You know, it would damage her mentally, psychologically for the rest of her life. We did her a favor. We honored her by not obeying because she certainly didn't want to. You, you see the difference that we're making. I, I hope we do. Now, in verses 2 and 3, let's look at the passages that that motivate obedience but then and are included in the obedience idea but go past the idea of obedience. These go longer than just obedience. Honor your father and mother. And then, of course, that's a quotation from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and mother. The parentheses is Paul's comment on that, which is the first commandment with a promise. Verse 3 follows up, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Your Bible should have that set apart in some sort of different set to show you that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's really at the fifth commandment, the fifth of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Verse twelve, And again, I've said it before, but I I don't want to ever be misunderstood. Sometimes dispensationalists are accused, and I'm one, are accused of completely disregarding the Old Testament. No, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. This is where the Fifth Commandment is repeated. But in answer to our earlier question as to whether the commands to obey and to honor are related, well, they certainly are. Because what Paul is doing is he's using these commands from the Fifth Commandment. As the motivating factor for children in obedience. So that's how it's being used here. You see? Children obey. And then this is the validation behind Paul's argument that they should obey. But the idea, the the two ideas, while related, and one's a motivation for the other one, the idea of honoring one's parent doesn't stop when the daughter says, I do, and marries someone else. There's still an honoring factor there. And all of us. All of us, at least for those of us whose parents are still alive, we need to remember that. Now, when a child becomes an adult child or an adult offspring, uh, they still must honor. But that honor may come in a different form. The honoring may not be obedience. It may be something else. It's always going to be motivated by love, though. Now, in the context of the Old Testament command to honor one's parents, the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, this was taken extremely seriously. I mean, extremely seriously. In, in fact, if you didn't do it, you were to, for example, if a child struck their parents physically, they were to be put to death. Exodus chapter 21, verses 15 and 17. If their parents were dishonored, that's a pretty broad thing, they were to be cursed. By the culture, by the community. That's Exodus, rather Deuteronomy 27, verse 6. If the child was stubborn and defiant, they would be killed. <laughs> they would be executed. Now, by the way, people who long to be under the Mosaic Law need to read it. <laughs> I'm telling you. Now, there's nothing wrong with the Mosaic Law, but I, for one, am kind of happy that the rebellious child wasn't killed. Because we're all rebellious, and of course this was consistent rebellion, and there's, we don't have records of this actually happening in Israel, but this was the law. But but please, I'm, I'm glad that I'm under the, the law of love rather than the law of Moses. Now with regard to this statement, which is the first commandment with a promise, this has caused a, a lot of discussion because, as you probably know, The second commandment also carries what looks like to be a promise with it. Um, That's Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. But the promises that are tied in with the second commandment are not specific to the second commandment. They seem to be cursings that will take place no matter what commandment you broke. So it seems as though... This particular promise is called the first promise, the first commandment with a promise by Paul because it's the first of the commandments that has a specific promise for the specific situation, for this one commandment. That's the way the word protos is used here. The first one that is specific to a specific command. Now, the promise, we, we all get the first one, honor your mother and father. Uh, that is um, something that should be drilled into our children when they're young that they have a responsibility to honor their parents even when they're old. Now, I've got to tell you, you can't just tell them. You've got to live it. And there are far too many Christian parents, and I'm talking about maybe 20-somethings, 30-somethings, that do not honor their parents in any way, that treat them like dirt and wonder why their own children later on in life will turn around and treat them like dirt. See, what goes around comes around. And if you're going to tell your children to honor their parents, then you better be honoring your parents in whatever form that takes. And remember, the only way we're going to do this, this goes back to Ephesians 5.18 as well. Because the the Holy Spirit's the one that's going to tell us how to honor a parent in any particular situation as an adult child. When obedience is no longer the answer, how do I honor that parent? I, I know I know Christians who have Christian children who are living in abject poverty while their children live in overt wealth. That's not honoring one's parent. And I don't care what kind of little tit the tats have, have happened over the course of a lifetime. There's no exception clause here. Well, more on that in a minute, because I do have more to say about that. The promise in verse 3, that it may be well with you. You can also translate that "that you may be blessed by God. That it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. The child who obeys and then respects his parents will bring about well-being or blessedness. And live an extended life on earth. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course. All of us know of younger Christians who have been, at least in our view, taken been taken home early. The thing is, in God's eyes, they weren't taken home early. They were taken home at exactly the right moment. But but we all know that. But that's the exception, not the rule. The general rule is those who honor their parents will, mo- will be most likely also... To live disciplined lives. If they're if they're being obedient as children, and if they're honoring their parents as adults, then at least from in that aspect of their Christian experience, we know they're on the right track. They'd be most likely to live disciplined lives and therefore blessed lives. But what about those who refuse this command? And there are many. I personally have been saddened to witness this happen far too frequently. And many times by Christian children who honestly, honestly believe they're walking with the Lord and that they're growing in grace. They honestly believe it, but they don't honor their mother and their father. In whatever form that takes, there's no verse that says exactly how one honors one's mother and father. That's why the Holy Spirit has to be the guide. But I think you're mature enough in the Lord that you could, you could get the drift without me giving, give, trying to insult you by giving you personal examples. That doesn't have to take place. But sadly, these Christian children that don't even speak to their parents, that don't even speak to their parents, they go years without even calling to find out if a parent's okay. They may have a mother in the hospital that's near death and you live in the same city. And you don't even pick up the phone to find out how your mama's doing, much less go by the hospital. That's not honoring your mother and father. It doesn't matter how many cute videos you post on Facebook, cute Christian videos that you post on Facebook. It doesn't matter how often you attend church. By the way, one out of every 12 people on the planet has a Facebook account. Do you know that? I don't. I want to take a show of hands, but that would probably be four or five of them One out of every 12 people on the planet. Not in the United States. No wonder that guy was the Time Magazine Person of the Year. That's You talk about impact. But God takes seriously the command to honor parents, and while the specific punishments are not in play in the present dispensation, the ones I mentioned a moment ago, execution, cursing, those are not in play in the present dispensation. God does take these commands very seriously. And the overall tone has not changed. We must honor our parents. I I really pity those who treat their parents in a completely dishonoring manner and then turn around and expect blessing from the Lord. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. That means you're not going to be blessed. You may be blessed, but it's not going to be from the Lord. You know, people can be blessed out from, from other sources. But not from the Lord. And again, I don't want to let this go without saying this. You can, you can preach to your children all day long. You need to obey me. You need to honor me. And I know parents that do this. But then that same parent who's saying that to their child never speaks to their mother. Never speaks to their father. And that's no good. That's no good. It becomes a generational problem when that happens. You pass it down from generation to generation to generation. You know, there's nothing in here about even liking your parents. Did you see that? There's nothing in here about liking your parents. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't think you were treated that well as a child. There's nothing in here that says that that gives you an out that you don't have to honor your parents. Right. And one more time, it doesn't mean that as an adult child you obey them. It doesn't mean that. But honoring and obedience, while honoring is the motivation for initial obedience, it supersedes that and continues on even in the adult child. Now in verse 4, we see the parent's responsibility, particularly the father. Paul addresses fathers here, and fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul addresses fathers because they are God's ordained family heads, on whom the primary responsibility for child rearing rests. Did you hear that? Fathers are the ordained head of the family. We just studied that over here. So fathers cannot abrogate the responsibility of to raise the children to the mother. So I'm too busy working. Well, if you're too busy working, then you better you better really be there on the weekends when you're there. When you're there, you better really be there and you better really care because it's your responsibility, fathers. If you're the head of the household, that carries with it responsibility. Now, it doesn't mean that the mother's not involved. It doesn't mean that there ought not to be consultation. And it doesn't mean there ought not ought to be unity with regard to how to uh, discipline and treat the children. There better be. There better be. A lot of communication. But fathers are mentioned because fathers have the ultimate responsibility. Now, children have been told to obey. Just think back to the marriage issue. Wives were told to submit. Then husbands are told, love your wife like Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it. So the higher responsibility actually falls with the husband. Here, children are told to obey. Fathers are told, treat your children well. And bring them up in discipline in the instruction of the Lord. Now, there are times when fathers aren't there. In our culture, far too often, children are being raised in a single-parent home. These mothers need prayer because they're out there trying to earn a living and work. At the same time, when they're just dog-tired, they come home and they have to instruct a child who hasn't been with them all day. It's a challenging thing for single mothers in this culture. In the Greco-Roman society, though, there wasn't much of that. There was always a father or perhaps a grandfather around, and in that culture, the father's word was law in that culture. Same way in the Jewish culture. The idea, the reason I say that, the idea of Paul having the gall to say to fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. In its cultural setting, would have been revolutionary. It would have been revolutionary for Paul speaking for God to say, Fathers, you have a responsibility too in this whole transaction. Now, they're supposed to obey you, but you're supposed to not unnecessarily provoke them to anger. In other words, you're supposed to treat the child with fairness and with justice. That's how a child learns what fairness is and justice, by the father treating them with that. And that means if a child deserves to be disciplined, if you love them, you discipline them. Now, There are other passages of Scripture that speak about this, that if you withhold the rod from the child, it means you don't love them. In fact, you, you may even hate them, according to the text. Christianity is really, in Paul, speaking for the Holy Spirit, is introducing, for the first time, really, a consideration for the feelings of the children into this equation, into the idea of parental responsibility. And this follows the pattern, same way it did with the husband and the wife. Wife, you have to do this, but but husbands, you have this responsibility. Children, you're supposed to do this, but dads and mothers, too, by implication, you have this responsibility. You know, it's still that way in terms of the patriarchal idea. It's still that way in some cultures today. Certain, in certain cultures today, the Father's word is still law, and that makes it more difficult. Now, it's not so much that way in the American culture, and I don't know if that's bad or good. I'm not making a judgment on that. But in certain cultures in different parts of the world, in patriarchal societies, every decision gets run th- by the Father. you know, you, know, you got to get permission to marry someone. you got to get the Father's blessing on where you're going to live or what kind of work you're going to do. And sometimes fathers are, are benevolent and do this in a righteous way, and sometimes they don't. It still doesn't abrogate the command on the, ch- on the child's side to honor. But God's going to deal. Here's the point. God's going to deal with fathers who don't fulfill their responsibility in the equation in the same way he's going to deal with husbands that don't fulfill their responsibility in the equation. So fathers have, don't have the free reign to treat their children any way they want to treat them. Because the father needs to remember that's God's child, too. That doesn't mean when the father takes the belt off or the shoe brush or whatever people do. I don't guess you can probably do that anymore. (laughs) But, uh, you know, in in that's it doesn't mean that you're damaging God's child. In fact, if it's it's an appropriate punishment, that's what you're supposed to be doing. But don't exasperate them. In, In fact, that's what the word, different translations will have. Different ideas in, in my Bible it says don't provoke your children to anger. That, that word really means exasperate. And that's why Colossians, I believe, translates it that way. Yeah, most editors do. And this just means you don't make unreasonable demands on the child. No matter how old that child is. But, it's, but it's, We're particularly talking about that time between the two or three-ish and to the time when they're an adult leaving the home. Hopefully most Christian fathers recognize that after a certain time, this idea of being able to tell your adult son or daughter everything they're supposed to do, thats that's gone now. And we said a minute ago, especially once they're married. Now, it doesn't mean that as a, an adult child you can't go to your dad or your mom for advice. I certainly hope you would. hope you respect them enough to say, hey, listen, what do you think about this or that? And, and uh, certainly sometimes parents give advice that's Solicited and sometimes it's unsolicited, you know, but I, you know what? As long as it's given in love, you know, as, as adults, as a but rather as as parents dealing with adult children, you can kind of get the clues when the advice is no longer really wanted, and you've got to back off a little bit <laughs> if you're wise. And remember, we're talking about wise living in this section, wise living that's enabled by understanding what the will of the Lord is. And I think we see what we can see what it is now. It's not really ambiguous here and um, doing it under the enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The idea is this, to, to summarize. The idea from the father's perspective is not to abuse the leadership responsibility in the family. Before God, you have certain responsibilities. The father's responsibility along with the mother, but the father is mentioned because he's the head of the household is to instruct children to become God-honoring adults with loving discipline and with biblical instruction. If you're absent from these children, fathers, either physically or even just emotionally, you can't do it. You can't mail it in. If you have kids, you better invest in those kids. Invest time in your children. It will pay off. You may invest something in the stock market and not pay off bond market or whatever market, presses, metals, whatever it may be, there's always a chance it's not going to pay off. But this is going to pay off. If you invest yourself in your child, it will pay off. And again, for this to work to its maximum benefit, the father has to be the spiritual leader in the family. Now, we all know cases where that's not the situation. But that's how it's supposed to work ideally. When one is in a leadership role, that individual, whether it's husbands to wives, Fathers to children, or masters to slaves, or employers to employees. When one is in a leadership role, that individual needs to remember to always keep the best interests of the one that is being led in mind. Now, for a child, in the best interest, that child may need to be disciplined. It may not be in the best interest for the child to just let them off without any discipline. If a child has a habit of running into a busy street and you don't discipline them for that, you don't love that child makes sense. But you always have to have their best interest in mind if you are a leader. And that that includes fathers and mothers. Now again, fathers and mothers. When an individual has been given delegated leadership, abuses that leadership, ultimately that person is going to answer to God. Again, that includes fathers and mothers. One of the worst things a person can do, in my view, as a parent, is to abuse that leadership and abuse that child. Think you're going to get away with that? God does, God tends to, at least in the scriptures, you see, He tends to side with the weak. And He doesn't put up with it. All the way from the Old Testament prophet of Amos all the way through the New Testament. You abuse the weak. You abused who? Widows and orphans? Remember that? God comes down hard on you. So don't use this leadership with regard to abuse. And I know, and, and, I, and I certainly would I'd say I know, I certainly would hope that that's not the case with anybody that's listening to my voice. But just in case, just in case. A father and mother both must lead with spirit-motivated wisdom and love. It's not always easy. Because the fathers are told not to exasperate their children Oftentimes we know that children exasperate their parents. It happens, it happens certain day, at certain ages too. You know, sometimes you, you go through it and you think everything's fine and then they, they grow a free will that's pretty strong. But the parents must lead with spirit-motivated wisdom and love. And finally, and, and importantly too, it is possible to honor one's mother and father even if you don't believe they have been good parents to you. There is no escape clause here. There's no clause that says, as a Christian, I am not going to honor my mother because she didn't make me fried chicken when I asked for fried chicken on my sixth birthday. Not going to do it. Or I'm not going to honor my mother and father because I went to the psychologist and they, and I'm not kidding, they hypnotized me. And caused me to remember things that I could never remember without the hypnotism that I was abused as a child. No, there's no, there's, there's no excuse here. You may have to really pray, especially as an adult, if that's the way you really feel. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes parents weren't the best parents, but you still are obligated to obey, and rather to honor, as adult children. And we're talking about as as minor children, it's easy. But the adult children honoring. You may need to pray for wisdom from the Holy Spirit as to how that works out in real life. How can I best honor my parents in this particular circumstance? How can I best do it? It's possible. It's it's probable. that That by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit, this is a very doable thing, even if you don't think it is. If you'll pray about it and ask God's wisdom, in this situation, how might I best honor my mother? How might I best honor my father? Now, I've used some mundane things like, like finances and or whatever, or phone calls. Obviously, you know, there's much more to honoring one's parents than just that. But at least that's a start. Children are to obey and honor. Fathers, mothers are to lead in wisdom and in love. Heavenly Father, this is not the easiest thing. Certainly not something that we can accomplish under the power of the flesh. So I pray that, as as it has been presented in this portion of Your Word, that we will rely upon the Holy Spirit and His ministry in our lives to help us to, as adult children, to honor our parents, as parents ourselves, to demonstrate this, and as those who will be listening to this lesson, who are still under their parents' wing and in the sense of dependence, that there should be an obedience. Help us to do this in a way that honors you, for that's what we want, in Jesus' name.